Now, I think we might all be probably familiar with the habit that some people have of asking questions, not because they're interested in the answer, but in order to make a point or to show how clever they are. I don't know if you've seen this happen. You may have noticed this was one of the features of the federal election campaign recently, which was journalists asking the candidates to answer basic factual questions that they already knew the answer to or could easily look up, which prompted the famous response, Google it, mate from the Greens leader, Adam Bant, uh, at one point. Now, I think Jesus could have sympathised with those politicians because he was always being asked loaded questions by people who wanted to trip him up. Usually, in his case, these were not journalists, but they were religious leaders who saw him as a rival or as a dangerous person. So he had things like the famous question about whether the Jewish people should pay taxes to the Romans, or various questions about what people should be allowed to do on the Sabbath. And our reading today starts with a question like this, with one of the religious legal experts asking Jesus essentially to prove whether or not he's orthodox as a Jewish person, asking him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Luke says uh, in the reading, this is, not a, this is a test for Jesus. It's not a sincere question from this man. And we're going to hear this question actually later when we get to Luke 18 eventually, and the questioner there is more sincere. But I think even ourselves as sincere religious seekers today, hopefully, we can benefit from Jesus' answer to this question, whatever the motivation there was behind it. So what is it that this religious lawyer is asking Jesus in this story? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's actually somewhat difficult to nail down the precise issue that he's talking about because, in fact, it is a big question that he's asking about the whole of life and the whole of God's plans for his people. I observe that for a lot of Christians and people in Western countries in general, uh, the view that we have of this question and the answer to it is basically shaped by a common setup that is used in very bad joke books. So there's a standard joke format, which you're probably all familiar with, where someone dies and arrives at the pearly gates to be greeted by St Peter, and he asks them why they should come in, or there's some humorous to and fro about how they've lived before they can get into heaven or not. You know, the kind of thing. This is the answer that a lot of people, I think, this question is asking about. Now, I know I'm showing my specific age here, but those who were young in the 90s might remember that this scenario was an important plot point in the film Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Um, and the answer was that in get, to get to heaven or to inherit eternal life, you need to memorise the profound lyrics to 80s hair metal songs and uh, be able to quote them. Not the answer, though, unfortunately, Bill. But... Let's not be misled then by jokes or cliches when we read the Gospels and think about the questions that Jesus is being answered, asked. Let's step back and see what specifically he's being asked about. So what this leader really is asking Jesus is not about how you get into a place like heaven, but he's asking about how do you inherit the life or experience of a particular time or of eternity of what we might call the age to come. How do you receive that? What he's asking Jesus is, how can I know that I'm living in a way now that will pass through this life into the world to come and be acceptable to God when he judges and saves the world in the future? I think in my interpretation of this question, what he's asking is repeating the issue that we've come back to again and again in this series, which is asking, how do I experience God's presence in my life now? How do I enter the kingdom of God? How do I bring that into my own experience? What must I do to inherit the eternal, eternal life? And he, as he said, he wants to inherit it. He wants to receive it now, not when he dies, 
you don't inherit anything when you die. You inherit something when someone else dies. Um, we do when we're alive. So yes, of course, he is asking about the future, but he's also asking about his life now. What must I do now? So at this question at its heart, it's not just a question about life after death. It's a question about how we, if you are God's people, how we should live now. And I think that's a question that every thoughtful person asks themselves in one form or another at some point, whether we has this specific form. We ask ourselves, how should I live? What is my life for? How should I conduct myself? What is it that gives my life and everything that I do ultimate meaning? And that's the question that he's asking Jesus here. And um, Jesus answers this man actually with a, a version of Google it, mate, uh, because he does ask the religious leader, what, what does it say in the law? How do you read it? Go and look it up. <laughs> Google it, mate. Um, and in order to teach us the answer then, Jesus, um, give, uh, Luke gives us these next two sections. One of them is the famous parable about the Good Samaritan and the other the very thoughtful story about Martha and Mary to understand what it is that the law actually says if you go and look it up. So let's think about the Good Samaritan for a moment. Um, a lot has been said about the story and the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm not sure that I could add to your knowledge of this story or an application of it. But what I want to point out today, though, is that it's part of Jesus's answer, or it's essentially Jesus's answer, to the question of what is this law that the Jewish people followed, our Old Testament, what is it actually about? So he asks him, what do you, what's the centre of the law? And Jesus and this religious lawyer lay out the idea that all these religious rules and laws in the books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, there are two things that they're actually designed to do, or to encourage us to do. Loving God and loving our neighbour. The great thing about Luke's writing here is that he understands the real motivation behind these questions from the religious lawyer and the, what, why he's asking about loving God and loving your neighbour is to minimise the demands of the law on people like himself. He understands what the law demands and he wants to know what's the bare minimum I can get away with. Um, to make it easy for him to believe that he's righteous and that he's doing what he should in order to inherit eternal life. And you can see that in what he asks. Now, it's very difficult for a, religious, for a religious leader to question whether or not we should really love God a lot. So he goes for the easier side of that equation. He asks about neighbours and how much we should love them. So he, so he asks Jesus, sure, I know I should love my neighbour, but who is my neighbour? Yeah. For him, hopefully the answer is that the neighbour, according to the law, is my close relatives, the people who live near me the people who are part of my culture and my nation, people who are easy to love and probably who he already loved. Love those who are like you and people who you have reason to love. Is that what the law is asking? That's easy to do. So if I'm doing that, can I inherit eternal life? Brilliant. I don't think I need to go into the detail of the Good Samaritan today and what happens in that story. I'll encourage you to read it again. But in answering this question about who is his neighbour, Jesus is saying, and the point of his story is that our neighbour under the law of God is anyone and everyone. Our neighbour under the law of God is everyone. To be a neighbour to anyone is to recognise the common humanity of all people and the responsibilities that we all have towards each other. There's no limits to that. That's why the Samaritan, in the end, he says, is the neighbour to the man on the road. Even though he's not from the same culture or religion or neighbourhood or anything, he is his true neighbour. The Samaritan, Jesus implies, is the one that keeps the law. 
much better than the priest, much better than the Levite who walk past, even though they are far more religious people. So what Jesus is, go- is doing here is going back over this question about the law and, and neighbours to the original question that the man asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's saying, well, the life of eternity, which the law is pointing you towards, the, a- the kingdom of God is about a life of universal love and compassion towards all of God's people, all of his creatures, whoever they are. If you live as that way, that way as the Samaritan did, you are inheriting eternal life. It's that simple. You can have it now, Jesus says. That's what you must do. Now that's an inspiring picture, isn't it? God's people called to love everyone perfectly, freely, generously, and in, in that way experience God's light, God's eternity. It's an inspiring idea, but as many of you might think when you consider it, it has a bit of a sting in its tail, which is that the reality that you might notice that none of us actually live that way. Now, I know there are great people, all of us know, who are very loving and who do, do try to do this, but this life of absolute dedication and compassionate service to all people is not something that's genuinely found among us, even among those who are sincerely seeking after it. We all fail to live according to the law of God. And this is the crushing realisation that I think is behind the desire of this religious leader to minimise the law, to justify himself. He knows he can't do what the law requires, but he wants to receive, inherit eternal life. So if we can't then live it according to the way of eternal life, how can we ever inherit it? How can we enjoy it? So this is the question that we're left with. And that's why I think we need the next story about Martha and Mary, because it reinterprets this question about eternal life in a a helpful way again. I think this is why this is after it. So let's think about Martha and Mary. It's actually a very short story. It only takes up four verses, but it feels longer. I think it's because it's so easy for us to get into the picture of the story that's being told here, because it's so true to our experience of life. So we hear the disciples are following Jesus around the countryside and one night they're invited to stay in Martha's home. And while Martha is out doing all the work of preparing for the guests and hosting them, her sister Mary, obviously lives with her, is sitting and just listening to Jesus. And when Martha complains to Jesus about this, he says that Mary has chosen the one necessary thing, one that's better. Now, I wonder how you feel about this story when you read it. Who do you identify with? For a long time, most preachers, I think, would interpret it very simply without being uh, contradicted. Mary has got the better thing. She, she stands for the life of prayer and contemplation, which is better than the life of action and practical service that Martha gives. There you go, take that message home and that's what it means. Spiritual things are more important than practical things. Easy. Um, I don't think I can do that anymore. I think uh, these nowadays the cultural trend among us has swung the other way. We tend to value practical action in our culture over spiritual contemplation. And there's a lot of sympathy with Martha around, I've noticed. A lot of folks who actually would like Martha to have a bit of a, good, a, bit of a say. Maybe she's got a point. It can be frustrating when no one helps out with the cooking and cleaning, can't it? And if you're a practical person, who, someone who gets things done, it's very aggravating to see people sitting around when they could be helping. Why can't you help? Yes. Anyway, so I can think there's some sympathy for Martha. I'm sure I can hear it rubbling away there. Now, 
I think then when Jesus talks to Martha, she's, he's not actually putting down Martha's and the, and the people among us who have that bent, though. He's not diminishing her value. What I think he's saying is when he sees, is when he looks at Martha, he recognises that in the midst of her activity, her busyness, she is not centred on anything. She's not centred on anything. So Martha's not just a busy, practical person. She is, as it says, worried, distracted, upset, focused on many different things that she feels she has to get right. And I think in many ways, Martha is a picture of all those people that Jesus would have known and which we might know who are very concerned about keeping the law, very concerned about doing what's right before God and doing what they should be doing and following their duty and, and have a tendency to lose themselves in all of that activity. So there are lots of rules to follow. There are lots of things to be worried about. There are lots of mistakes that can be made. There are lots of things that must get done. And we look around and we see that there are other people aren't trying as hard as we are. They're not looking after it, so we need to take it on ourselves. And, you know, wonder how much easier would, it li- would life be? How much easier would it be to be good? How much easier would it be to run a church if everyone just got up and helped as well by worrying about keeping the law and, doing, and serving God the way I do? So the problem with this attitude is that while a lot of good things get done this way, there's no abiding purpose or centre to it. It's not grounded in anything. I think that's what Jesus is seeing in Martha. As he points out, Martha is focused on many things. There's actually no centre to her heart here. But Mary has chosen to focus on one thing. First, to get the central reality right in her relationship with him first. He talks about it. She has chosen one thing, the one thing that is necessary. I always find the one necessary thing to be a really evocative idea because he doesn't really say what it is. It's implied. So what is the one necessary thing that Jesus is talking about here? What is it that Mary has chosen above what Martha has? I think that the one necessary thing is grace. Um, Grace. As we've learned before in Luke, grace, when we talk about it, it's unearned blessings and gifts from God. It's the things he gives us, like his presence, his love, his joy, peace, healing, and all sorts of things, things that we cannot earn and which we don't have to earn and which God gives us anyway. That is grace. I think that's the one necessary thing to receive. I'm sure it would have been okay for Mary to go and help Martha out with her preparations But what was Martha preparing for? She was preparing her house to receive Jesus and to be with him. She was preparing her house for grace, the one necessary things that she was going, the gift from God that she that she wanted to receive. It was right there in front of her, where she could, like Mary, just sit and enjoy it. And Mary realized that she already had what she needed. She didn't want to put that aside in order to be busy, even with good things. I'm sure she would have gotten up and helped if she was asked, but I think even then she would have been centred on Jesus in her work because she had chosen the necessary thing first. So the question for Martha, I think, is if, when everything was done, would she have been able to sit down and listen to Jesus? If everything was finished, would she have been able to focus on him? Could she be present and receive his grace regardless of what she'd done to deserve it or not, whether there were some things left undone? So the question that we're asked today by the religious leader is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Well, what is eternal life? What is it that we're asking to inherit? According to the parable of the Good Samaritan and the story of Mary and Martha, I believe we can say that eternal life is a life of love for others that is centred on the grace of God. Eternal life is a life of love for others that is centred on the grace of God. It's something from eternity. Yes, it is something of the future or, or what is to come, but it's, we can inherit it now, we can experience it now. And that's what Jesus was teaching the crowd that day when he talked about the Good Samaritan and what he's teaching us today. If we fulfill the law by loving our neighbour in the fullest possible way, we'll be, we'll be living according to the life of eternity, in, even in this life now. But we probably won't do that. And so even if we fail to do that, in the midst of our busyness and distractions and all the frustrations of life, we are still able to be resting in the one necessary thing, which is that Jesus is with us now and his grace is everything we need in order to receive and inherit eternal life. That is the gift that he gives. Now, I don't think that's an answer that you could actually Google. Then maybe you can now that this sermon is on the internet. I don't know. Um, it's an answer that we, can, we need to accept, we need to live it, and it's very hard. But it is what, when we come with our heart asking Jesus, how do I inherit this life you're offering me? This is what he's saying. Centre yourself on my presence, be with me, receive what I have to offer. And out of that you will live a life of love for others and for God. More and more, the life of the age to come. So as we've been encouraged already by Viv, I invite you to draw near to Jesus and sit at his feet again today and receive the one necessary thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to you today, we do have two hearts, most of us, a Mary part and a Martha part, and we are distracted, we are concerned about many things, worried about legitimate concerns in the, in the conduct of our life. We want to see things done. We feel we have obligations to you and to other people. We pray that you would help us to fulfil those with a life of love, of service and to be practically living out our faith in you. But we ask that in all that, the one necessary thing would be given to us and that your grace would be poured out so that we can rest at your feet and that in all we do, you will be with us. So I pray this now in your name. Amen.